There is an estimated 450,000 people with multiple sclerosis in the United States. And of this staggering number, there are two to three times as many women as men, with a gender gap that is only widening. Since the majority of women with MS get diagnosed in their 20s and 30s, the need for understanding the reproductive impacts of MS becomes critical. And how to address these challenges is what we're going to focus on today. You're listening to ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Joining me today at Omnia Education's Women's Health Annual Visit in New York is Dr. Carolina Ionetti, Associate Professor of Clinical Neurology at the University of Massachusetts and Associate Director of the MS Center in Worcester, Mass. Dr. Ionetti, welcome to the program today. Thank you for having me today. Great to have you. So to start, given your neurology background, let's just take a quick walkthrough review of how MS takes its toll on the neurological system so that we'll have a framework for the reproductive impacts. What can you tell us about that, about MS and its structural damage to the neurological system, like the brain and the spinal cord? So multiple sclerosis is a disease that is driven by two main mechanisms. One, it's inflammatory mechanism that might be the initial, actually, trigger. And the second one is the um, neurodegenerative um, mechanism that might actually be the driven of irreversible disabilities. Unfortunately, as soon as you hit, you know, certain threshold into uh, neurodegeneration and number of structures that are destroyed irreversible, the disability accumulates slowly. And it's, it's some, sometimes it's um, very hard even for patients to describe what they are going through, and sometimes people who are outside, like family or friends, can even say more about that. This disease is a disease that involves the whole brain and the whole spinal cord. Interesting enough, the one of the main target of this disease is myelin, but it's myelin only in the central nervous system and not the peripheral myelin that has slightly different structure and it's not attacked uh, in majority of cases of MS. By having this disease with a dissemination in time and space of this inflammation and degeneration process that it's going on all the time during the disease course creates a possibility that you can have multiple neurological function actually mm-hmm. affected. And that is what it's um, very difficult sometimes uh, even to detect those and even more difficult sometimes to treat those. One of the important functions is related to the central involvement of the reproductive you know, function as well as bladder control and bowel control that sometimes influence definitely, you know, more than other function, the possibility of a good sexual activity or life as well as, how I said, reproductive life for young women that are majority of our patients in the earlier phases of the disease. So we're getting a picture of very diffuse damage across lengthy stretches of time, very sporadic. It does sound like that could have a myriad of effects all across the board for an individual. I don't want to take us off track, but uh, any ideas on uh, right now on the etiology of MS? Does anybody have any idea what's, where that's coming from? I don't think so as one single you know, agent or mechanism mm-hmm. may explain this disease, unfortunately. And nobody knows exactly what is the first you know, event that it's happening. And when is that? This is definitely probably a Nobel Prize discovery. But I'm afraid that actually because of the disease presentation, it might be different from one individual to another. 
And this is similar with all the other autoimmune diseases like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, diabetes type 1, sarcoid, and so on. So those diseases are genetically complex inherited diseases and as well as environmental you know in genetic relationship extremely extremely variation uh, in the real life so it will be very difficult i think to say that it's only one cause and that was the difficult you know to validate some of the studies that show that for example ebv infection is a mononucleosis severe mononucleosis may be a risk factor uh, later on for multiple sclerosis. But this was not validated in all the cases of MS. So again, there are a few other viruses too, you know, and some people are claimed that they have the answer, you know, like the herpes SSV6 virus, but you cannot replicate that. You cannot find one explanation for all the cases, and this is what's difficult. So still at the drawing board right now, I imagine. <laughs> on the research end, yes. of which you're, you're heavily involved. So why don't we move right into the reproductive impacts. What are some of the most common reproductive issues among women with multiple sclerosis? What do you encounter? First of all, there is a psychological barrier for a lot of women who were diagnosed with MS prior to becoming pregnant. And it's a little bit different if they were pregnant and then they were diagnosed with MS. Then they have a little bit less fear about what's going on. Young women who are, you know, establish a family and they have a career usually, mm. and they hear that they have MS, even if they don't have any disability, talking about physical disability, they will still be afraid what will happen with them during the pregnancy and even more what's happened as, as soon as they deliver, you know, after pregnancy with them and with the babies. So there is a two components. Yeah. So that's one of the big barriers. And this is where uh, it's our, my role at least, as a neurologist, where we discuss all the evidence base that we have from a good, very strong evidence of epidemiological studies that shows that actually pregnancy might be even protective against disability later on in the life. Mm. And even if you have, you know, two or more pregnancy, it might be even better than to have none or one. So we try to support and make clear that, you know, pregnancy, it's, uh, it's definitely a, a go anytime, and they have to definitely have planning for that. You're moving in on an interesting question. You said what you try to communicate to the patients. But let me scale that back for a second and ask you, who is communicating with the patients on this? Or is anybody doing that? I mean, is this something that falls squarely on the neurologist's shoulders? Or is, should this be shared in a group setting? Oh, that's a, that's a very good question. We definitely do that in the MS Center. We have a strong attention to communication and education of our patients, basically. It's sometimes even more important than treatment itself for some of the patients. And we have usually very good relationship and we establish, you know, communication between us and primary care physician most of the time. So primary care physician is a second, you know, person that can go over all this information and we communicate between it. So me as a neurologist with the primary care physician to be on the same kind of, you know, level of the information. And um, the third party will be a high risk OBGYN. So we usually, if we have a patient who wants to be pregnant or she is already pregnant, we refer them to a high-risk OBGYN 
uh, one, because we have access to one, and that it's you know a privilege. And two is that those clinics are having a lot of resources and a lot of abilities to follow these patients and to communicate to any time point that they may have more information that they need. Well, with that backdrop, why don't we turn to some specific topics of interest? And one that comes to mind immediately is the topic of contraception, which I'm sure you encounter all the time in clinical practice when interfacing with patients with MS on the neurological side. And one of the questions there is, how does contraception get affected by MS or MS treatment for patients suffering from this disease? How do you counsel them through contraception methods? Contraception, it's another, you know, field where we as a neurologist, we don't prescribe those treatments or methods. We do recommend that everybody talks with their primary care physician who knows the whole picture of other issues that they may have, as well as with an OBGYN. In terms of what we can discuss with our patients and even with the primary care or OBGYN, it's what is the influence of the treatments that patients with MS may have on different contraceptives. Because some of them, they can interfere with the levels of contraceptive, so they can, you know, have failure of contraceptive. Mm-hmm. This is, is not in, only new for MS treatment. We, as a neurologist, do that for seizure treatments, too, for treatments that are involved in cancer treatments. And we borrow some of the treatments from cancer, like immunosuppressants, too. And we really need to have a very good level of contraceptive to be sure that we don't end up to have event that we couldn't prevent, actually. So uh, we know that all the majority of medication that we treat MS with are class C, but even class D we have. There is only one medication that it's class B, and that it's uh, glatiramer acetate. Mm-hmm. So we really need to have a good you know, level of contraception during the treatment. So that's a very important thing for us. And for that perspective, we usually collaborate with, again, we don't prescribe, we don't change anything, but we are making sure that the party who is prescribing this, they know what kind of interaction can happen with the different products. That makes sense. Well, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. I'm joined by Dr. Carolina Ionetti from the University of Massachusetts. So If we turn to pregnancy planning then, we talked about contraception, but if we move over to pregnancy planning, how do you counsel patients on setting expectations such as coming off of MS medications um, and how that may affect the disease progression? So this is not well evidence-based decision, and it's pretty much, you know, a discussion and negotiation pretty much with the patient um, after the patient knows, you know, some kind of time point about conception, you know. So based on that and based on the mechanism and pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic of each of the drugs, mm. we decide, you know, uh, what is the best window for them to conceive. So some of the drugs we might tell them you can stop the drug but don't conceive until another six months or wait only just six weeks or four weeks, and then you can conceive. So it depends on what is the mechanism of action of each drug. Unfortunately, some of the drugs, you know, I have to say, are biological, the the drugs that we use, so are not um, chemicals. So the biological, generally speaking, they have a very prolonged, you know, effect, but Hopefully that it's only on the target that we want, so the the immune system. 
So generally speaking, we hope that there is no much interaction, you know, into the reproductive, you know, function, but you never know, you know. So that's why sometimes we take a little bit more time, you know, from the last administration of a drug. And that carries with it imposed risks of potential disease worsening yes. for these patients. Yes, that's why we are trying to be sure that we are still in a window of biological, you know, leftover, if you want, activity mm -hmm. of a drug. Uh, and use that, you know, opportunity to conceive, knowing that the immune system is still suppressed, but the molecule is out of the system completely. Yeah. Well, then let's move into pregnancy then. How do you distinguish, as a neurologist, the symptoms of pregnancy versus symptoms of MS worsening when a person is getting into the later stages of pregnancy? How do you know when a patient comes to you who's in the third trimester and saying, I'm having some symptoms here that I'm worried might be related to my MS? but I'm not sure if there are also symptoms of pregnancy. How do you counsel them through that? First of all, I think this is a very easy question for me because fortunately, the MS, majority of cases, they are doing much better in the second and third trimester from the MS disease activity. So knowing that you know, information, we are trying to discern very careful if there is a real disease activity or not, like a relapse or progression. Mm -hmm. And that can be done, one, by physical examination, of course, by history. So if you take a good history, you can figure it out if that comes from central nervous system or it's in the periphery, you know. So that's why, you know, we distinct very clear that this disease does not affect the nerves, you know. That might be compressed, might be, you know, uh, inflamed, might be... Um, or a whole different kind of the, nerve the in nerves, this case. Yes, yeah. <laughs> in the pelvic area or in the body, you know, in general, mm -hmm. because of the swelling and other changes, anatomical changes that can happen. So, so pregnancy might get on people's nerves, but not necessarily affect their nerves, as it were. Yes. I Good. Understand. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, how I said, history, physical exam that can discern, uh, distinguish between central and peripheral etiology. And if we have a central etiology, then we wonder, is this MS or is this might be something else, actually, that because, you know, pregnant women can have a stroke, too, yes? They are more prone. They, it's more prone for other, you know, type of uh, pathology during the pregnancy. And these days, what it's helping us is that you can do even an MRI. You know, so with the new data that it's accumulated more and more, it's safe to do an MRI later on in the pregnancy. So that will save us, you know, and will give us more opportunity to see and to differentiate between other pathology and MS pathology activity. Mm. What about the, at the labor de and delivery stage? Any special needs for the MS patient there? From what I know, I, there is no anything very specific for MS patients. And, um, you know, might come only at the level of uh, more, you know, physical disability, if there is any kind of position that is better for them. If there is no indication that we know for cesarean section for patients with MS. There is no, you know, contraindication for a spinal anesthesia either. So from that perspective, we don't have any kind of specific recommendation. And that will be only just, um, you know, a discussion with the OBGYN, but nothing more than common sense based on the each individual anatomy and other motor or physical disability that are at that point. You know? Interesting. Well, why don't we close then with one of the last areas within this pregnancy course and talk about postpartum and talk about lactation risks, because... We know that some of these medications being in the B to D categories, they may 
it's not totally known, may pose some lactation risks. And one of the questions I'm sure that comes up here is trying to make that call on your end as to whether prioritize the MS disease worsening risks versus the lactation risks on medication for patients who really want to breastfeed. What can you tell us about the, the breastfeeding question for MS patients? So for the breastfeeding, you know, so postpartum, you know, period, uh, we know that the drop in the hormonal level, you know, will bring back the disease activity. So where we had the suppression in the second and third trimester, there will be definitely in the next 30 days, 45 days, will be possible of a regain of the disease activity. There is some suggestion that might be less when you are lactating, so when you're breastfeeding. It's actually, it's clear that it's not as good as the, let's say, pregnancy level of your hormones. That's for sure. So there are some studies showing some benefit and some studies that show no benefit in terms of the disease activity. How we judge on each patient is based on their history prior to pregnancy. So it's critical to know a little bit about how many relapses and what kind of disability they were with the relapses, how severe they were, how much impact they had on their quality of life and uh, very high function, you know, cognitive function and so on. So based on that definition of their activity prior to pregnancy, we can predict almost that the same kind of disease activity will happen immediately after pregnancy. So as soon as the surge is done, they will regain exactly the intensity of that type of activity. So based on this, we do talk with our patients. We don't contraindicate breastfeeding. Like I said, you know, some studies show some benefit, you know, in some cases. But in patients who are having a very high risk to have severe and disabling relapses, we do mention that, you know, they may do maybe breastfeeding for a very short period of time, like four, six weeks, and then go on a drug or don't do it at all. Okay. And this is uh, the patient's level decision. will not be our decision, but uh, we will support them so we can even do some treatments, preventive treatments, like, for example, schedule steroids or IVIG and pump the milk immediately after the infusion. And then, you know, you can breastfeed with the rest of the, during the rest of the day, evening, or so on. In terms of the drugs... In the immunomodulator immunosuppressants drugs, there is only one drug, how I said, that can, even in the lactation you know, category, can theoretically might be used. But there is no you know, guidelines, and theoretically it can be safe, like Copaxin. So if it's safe for mom um, you know, to conceive a baby, so it's safe even for baby after it's you know, conceived. So that is how it comes. Two, it's even interference. You know, theoretically, they cannot be taking the milk. The babies are pretty much destroying all the proteins like interference and glatiraromera acetate. They are not resisting to the intestinal tract. So that's one of the background for some of the neurologists that they may use, for example, glatiraromera acetate during the breastfeeding but it's not a guidelines, and I personally don't use it either. So I'm waiting for more data. I think will be a positive, you know, in the end, and a go to use it. But at this moment, we don't have enough evidence to recommend it. Well, with that positive outlook for what's to come, I do very much want to thank Dr. Carolina Ionetti for her time and insights today and helping to address reproductive issues for women with MS. Now, for access to this 
and other important interviews in women's health, please visit ReachMD.com. This is Dr. Matt Bernholtz, thanking you as always for listening.